The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right now, the state is kind of reasserting its control over the economy in many ways. So there's not as much room for that relationship. And especially in industries like real estate, which the party has deemed not to be in favor anymore because of these risks that we've talked about. They sit they're saying, we don't want <laughs> we don't want to help you and we won't help you. And so I think they're saying in the end, we are in control. You know, this might have been a two-way relationship for a long time, but in the end, we call the shots. So that's not to say it won't be reshuffled in the future and maybe there'll be more space down the line. But right now they're saying we're in charge and Xu Jiayin has to fall in line. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast. October 26th, 2021. Evergrande is a massive Chinese real estate company that has found itself with more than $300 billion in liability and no real idea of how to get out of debt. Its financial problems have come to a head in recent months and concerns have grown about the potential of Evergrande's debt problems to threaten the Chinese economy. It's a financial story, but one with real implications for China's broader economic picture in great power competition between the U.S. and China. To break it all down, I talked with Katrina Northrup, who's a reporter for The Wire China and the author of a recent profile of Evergrande and its highly mercurial CEO. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 26th. Katrina Northrup on the Evergrande debt crisis. Let's start with the basics here. What is Evergrande and why has it suddenly become such a big news item? Yeah, so Evergrande is one of the largest property developers in China. It has over a thousand projects in 280 cities all across the country. And they were founded in the late 90s by a guy named Xu Jiayin, who became the richest man in China. The company kind of rode the wave of China's rapidly growing economy and urbanization to become this hugely important company. But from the very beginning, they've also been in huge amounts of debt. So they just borrowed and borrowed and borrowed. And it's become a news item over the past few months because that debt is finally coming back to bite them. And 
that's because the Chinese government has said, hey, you guys are too heavily in debt. They've instituted a set of policy changes that kind of restricts lending in the property market, not just for Evergrande, but for the whole sector. And now that Evergrande's debts are coming in and they can't borrow, they can't pay those debts. So if the company collapses, then many worry that that could spur a broader economic crisis in China. Uh, It's still unclear whether that is going to happen, but It's caused a lot of people to be very concerned. And so we'll unpack a lot of that as we go on. But I think it might be helpful first to think about why this is an issue that listeners to the Lawfare podcast would would want to pay attention to. So what does the Evergrande disaster have to do with general issues of great power conflict? or, Or why should listeners concerned with U.S. national security be paying attention to a company, albeit a a very big company in China, having financial problems? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in the most basic terms, listeners concerned with national security should care about Evergrande because so much of the US-China conflict or great power conflict, whatever you want to call it, is about economic competition between the US and China. And that's in many ways, at the center of it all. So anything that's going to have a huge impact on the Chinese economy is going to have a huge impact on the U.S.-China relationship. And just to drive home how big of an impact Evergrande and the real estate sector has on the Chinese economy, it makes up, real estate makes up nearly 30% of China's GDP. So this isn't just a random company in a random sector in China. This is the second largest real estate developer in China in an industry that makes up 30% of the nation's GDP. So that's huge. There there was recently a piece in The Atlantic by Michael Schumann, which I really recommend, that laid out the connection between Evergrande and the U.S.-China rivalry nicely. And he wrote that, so much of the rivalry and the U.S. conception of kind of China's threat to the U.S. is premised on China's continued economic growth. And the Evergrande crisis shows that their continued economic growth is not necessarily a given. So we don't want to predict China's demise in any way. But it's important to think about the weaknesses of the Chinese economic model as well as its strengths. So those weaknesses have huge implications for U.S. policies towards China. So so we should be thinking about those pretty carefully. Okay, so I want to move back now to the actual thing that has unfolded, which you outlined a bit in your first answer. So you'd sort of mentioned that Evergrande in one way or another has always been in debt. But I wonder who do they owe money to, right? Who Who's the collection of actors that they owe money to? Is it foreign investors? Is it domestic investors? Is it the Chinese government? And how did they come to be so in debt, right? What were the range of, of behaviors that led to them being in such a bad position? Yeah, um, I think the question is more who they don't owe money to. <laughs> um, <laughs> they owe money to domestic Chinese banks. They owe money to overseas investors. They owe money to suppliers. 
And they also owe money to normal people who bought unfinished apartments and they've yet to receive them. So they have a total of $300 billion in liabilities. And they, they did a lot of things that led to this. The first thing they did is they just borrowed money really aggressively um, and they borrowed money to buy land to develop. So they just went bigger and bigger and bigger. And that worked fine for a while when the the property market was doing really well. But now that it's slowing a bit and the Chinese government is trying to limit the amount that they are able to lend, it's, it's not going as well. And the other thing that they did is they used a practice called pre-sales, which is where customers pay for developments that were not yet constructed. So they were basically borrowing twice for every development, first from a bank and then from the customer themselves. So kind of the combination of those pre-sales as well as just their general aggressiveness about borrowing made them very in debt. And that's not unique to Evergrande. Most property developers did this in China. So I think a lot of the coverage has kind of missed that, that they it's not it's not as if Evergrande was out there by themselves doing this. Everyone was doing it, but Evergrande may be a little bit more extreme. And so part of the reason why so many companies did this is because they assumed that the government would step in and help if they ever failed. So they were borrowing on the assumption that the market would keep doing well, as well as that the government would step in if there was ever a crisis. And so just taking a step back, right? So it's a picture, $300 million worth of debt owed to some massive combination of like institutional investors. And then also there's physical people who are owed apartments, but do not have apartments to move into. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. A pretty extensive problem. So you you mentioned a bit earlier the the cause for this to suddenly become a news item, right? So this is, as you say, this has been something that's been building slowly for a while, but readers of, of US News will have recently seen a massive uptick in the amount of stories about Evergrande. The New York Times Daily podcast did an episode yesterday that centered entirely on what happened at Evergrande. So what is the precipitating event for it to now be such a big deal if it has, you know, at least in among China watchers been an open secret that this is what's been going on for a long time. Yeah, so the company and many of these real estate companies have been in debt for a really long time, but the precipitating kind of factor is the new Chinese policy called the three red line policies, which basically sets specific guidelines for how much property companies can be in debt. So they did this or they put those policies in place in August of 2020, and we're just now seeing the impact. And the the reason why the Chinese government did this is because they are worried about the systemic risks that companies like Evergrande could pose. So they too have been seeing, you know, oh, this, this company has been in debt forever. We need to do something about it. So they put in place these policies, which, you know, was necessary, but also has the potential of, of causing this widespread economic crisis. 
And so a, a lot of what you're saying here sounds and, and has been picked up in U.S. media as having real overtones of what happened here in, in 2008 with the financial crisis, right? It has to do with real estate. Underneath all of it is a sort of attitude that if all goes south, there'll be uh, government support on the back end. And you do see these these news stories in the U.S. that say this might be China's Lehman Brothers moment or something like that. Do you see that as, as being an instructive way of thinking about what's going on here? Or does it sort of miss certain components of the story? Yeah, I think that comparison has has been everywhere. And it's very natural to want to make a comparison that you know, hits home for for Americans and we can understand quickly. But from the reporting I've done, most people don't think that comparison really makes sense. The Chinese and American financial systems are very different and the comparison kind of assumes they're the same. The Chinese government is saying they don't want to bail out Evergrande, but they still want to contain the crisis in any way they can. They they have no incentive of blowing up their to blow up their own economy. So they want to contain this and they have more control over the economy than the US government does. So if things get really bad, they can use their power to 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 contain it and that's something that the US can't do. There are also kind of basic things about, you know, media. There there was a a New York Times piece, I think last week about how Evergrande is everywhere in the foreign news and it's nowhere in Chinese news. And that means that, you know, Chinese people aren't maybe informed about what's happening. Obviously, they know something about what's happening, but not to the extent as they could if it was an open media. So those types of things make contagion less likely in the economy. And also the the Chinese government just has more levers to pull to contain it. So I think we can say that this is going to have a big impact, but to say it, it has, you know, a Lehman Brothers ring to it d- doesn't make sense. I think in, in terms of the real, the real fears here, people are worried that this could cause broader contagion in the property market, which has already started to happen. You know, a few other Chinese property developers have missed big payments in recent weeks and more are coming. So that's a big fear. Another big fear is that it could spook foreign investors investing in China's property sector. And, you know, that's a big deal. And more broadly, this could lead to slowing growth in the Chinese economy. So, the Chinese government is betting that transitioning away from kind of this crazy speculative growth that the real estate sector is known for will be good in the long run. But in the short run, this could cause some serious pain. Um, so I don't want to downplay the the risks and the kind of the challenge that this moment poses, but saying that it's a Lehman Brothers moment may not be the most useful comparison. So I want to move, you wrote a lengthy piece for The Wire China about Evergrande and its CEO, which delves into a lot of the stuff we've already discussed, but also some very interesting details about the person himself. So I think the best place to get into that would be, who is the the high-flying CEO of Evergrande? Yeah, the high-flying CEO of Evergrande is a man named Xu Jiayin, 
And he is a huge character. He was very fun to write about. He grew up in a family with pretty modest means. Uh, He worked at a steel mill for a decade. And it wasn't until 1996 when he decided to start Evergrande. And he was in the right place at the right time. So it was hugely successful. And he became China's richest man with a peak net worth of $43 billion. So he was very wealthy. And he wasn't afraid to show that he was wealthy. So he's very flashy. He flaunts his wealth with, you know, yachts and jets and buys diamond rings as presents. And so he's kind of an archetype of a of a tycoon. And he is also known for being very good at making connections with people in high places. So even from the very beginning of his career and the very beginning of Evergrande, he was getting assistance from the brother of Wen Jiaobao, who was China's premier. He was also getting help from this group of billionaire property developers in Hong Kong who he played poker with, um, and they helped him at various challenging points along the way. He got Jack Ma to help him out. There are funny scenes of Jack Ma and Xu Jiayin getting drunk and making deals. So this is a guy who is a master at getting people to help him. And something that's striking about this moment is that he doesn't have anyone to help him out and no one is rushing to, to kind of save him. So he's a he's a fascinating character. And he also is someone who wasn't afraid to diversify into these crazy different projects. So he bought a soccer team. He uh, launched a water bottle company. He went into cooking oils. He then most recently launched an electric vehicle company. He was gutsy. And a lot of people viewed those projects as almost like vanity projects. So just like he was flashy with his wealth, he also was, you know, doing all these uh, seemingly random, random projects. You had one particular anecdote I found amusing about his, his wealth and his, his opulence. So he has this strange nickname. What's that (laughs) nickname? Yeah, he has a nickname, uh, (laughs) Belt Brother, which is because he wore a bright gold Hermes, you know, designer belt to a meeting. And that meeting was the Chinese Political Consultative Conference, which is a political advisory body in China, mostly made up of politicians, but there are a few entrepreneurs who are allowed on, and he was one of them. And he showed up to this meeting, you know, very somber meeting where everyone's just, you know, talking about Chinese politics. Um, and he showed up with this designer belt. And the Chinese media world just blew up with all these photos and comments about him being very flashy. And I think that, that anecdote really speaks to a change in the way that China is, views its business leaders because today he would not be caught dead wearing a designer belt at a at a Chinese political meeting with all the crackdowns going on and the scrutiny on the business world 
entrepreneurs and CEOs like him are trying to be as modest and not flashy as possible. So being lo- low key is is the best way forward. And at you know Xu Jiayin's height, he was definitely not low key. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So one of the things you mentioned, and it's probably illustrated by his even his presence at this meeting, is that he was sort of the master of connections and of, of networking and of, of taking advantage of a particular system of of Chinese business. I'm curious what that system is, right? And, and what role you think that played in Evergrande getting to the place where it got to? Yeah, um, he definitely was a master at making those connections. And we had one kind of the most significant anecdote in the piece about it was his connection to Wen Xiaobao's brother. His actually Evergrande's predecessor company went public through, you know, kind of a complicated corporate structure. Um, but that that was basically facilitated by a company with ties to Wen Jiaobao's brother. And Wen Jiaobao is at the height of Chinese politics. He, he's, a, you know, an elite. So that is one example of how high Xu Jiayin's connections go, but I'm sure there are many other examples of that. So he really was good at getting people to back him. And then when he got in trouble, they could always help him out. And I think in every country that connections are important. Uh, I don't want to say that China is the only country where where that's important. But getting political elites to back you is, is very, very important in China. And um, Xu Jiayin seemed to realize that early on and figured out how to do it. And so why is that? Why is it in China that this type of operation and this type of, of networking is so important, right? There's there's lots of reasons I could think of, but I'm curious what you would diagnose it as. Yeah, I think for a long time, it was just because the Chinese government seemed to look the other way. Authorities didn't really care what business leaders were doing and didn't care about their attempts to buy political connections because as long as it was facilitating growth and leading to economic growth, it, it was okay. And there's a scholar at the University of Michigan named Yuan Yuanang who is very good on this. She she wrote a book called China's Gilded Age. And she talks about this as access money. That's the money that, you know, business 
leaders pay to to get access to political elite. And she talks about this as functioning like the steroids of Chinese capitalism. So politicians are rewarded for working with business people, and that in turn stimulates economic growth. So I think for a long time, the, the government didn't care. And as a result, business leaders got really good at this system. I think there are, there's a lot to be said about this. You could write a book about connections between business and and the state in China. Um, and many books have been written. But I think at the basic level, it's just because it, it kind of worked in the government's advantage for a really long time to not care. So moving back to Evergrande specifically, help me understand how that system and that dynamic helped lead to its downfall, right? Is, is the argument just that it encourages such a bloated overconfident way of doing business that it lets something like this happen? Or is there, are there other aspects to it as well? Right? Like I think I read your piece as saying in, in some sense, right, the the whole system of currying favor leads to the conditions of possibility where this this can happen. Yeah. It creates structural problems in the economy. So it stimulates massive economic growth, but that growth comes at a cost and it kind of incentivizes or it sets up a system where kind of connections get you forward, not performance. And for a long time, that runaway growth was good. And that's what the Chinese economy wanted, or that's what the Chinese government wanted for the economy. But now they're saying, we don't want that runaway growth. We we don't want that system to keep going. We need more sustainable growth. And real estate and Evergrande doesn't really fit into that anymore. And so on the real estate market specifically, you've you've talked about this in a couple of your answers. And at least from what I gather from coverage of, of Evergrande is that the real estate market is particularly ripe for the type of problem that came to pass with Evergrande, right? It's a sector experienced massive growth in China questionable economic basis for that. Walk me through what about the real estate market in particular makes it right for this type of problems. Mm -hmm. So real estate in every country is prone to this, but I think in China, the what's specific about it is that the government technically owns all the land and then can sell it. So Xu Jiayin was able to cultivate relationships with political leaders and officials because if he had a real estate project in a lot of different cities across China he has helped those officials you know he has helped their personal wealth he has helped their city's economic growth and so every time he does a project he kind of gets one more official in his rolodex and that's a very different model than if you're a tech company, for example. You don't have that type of reach all across China. And real estate also is set up in China where local governments also struggle with debt. And they are selling their land to companies like Evergrande in order to pay for basic government functions. So they need Evergrande. And so it's kind of this symbiotic relationship. And so as a result, Xu Jiayin just had so many friends all across China who who he helped out and they helped him. 
Um, there was someone in who I talked to for my story who made a good contrast, which was comparing Jack Ma of Alibaba to Xu Jiayin. And, you know, Jack Ma is one of the most important business leaders in China, but he doesn't have the you know, breadth of Rolodex as Xu Jiayin does because he doesn't have that type of system where he has a real estate project in every city all across China. He has a tech company headquartered in one city that has a huge impact on China, but he can't kind of call on all of these officials because he doesn't have those relationships. So there's something that that's why real estate is is so unique in its ability to to cultivate relationships. Yeah, I want to come back to to the Jack Ma comparison in a sec, but on the subject of of the relationship between the government and Chinese business tycoons. So walk me through a little bit what the dynamics behind that are, right? It it's not a monolith as as you note with Jack Ma versus the situation at Evergrande, but how does the one group being the CCP depend on the other being the business tycoons, right? So where do their interests diverge? And as a general matter, how have the two constituencies sort of navigated the tensions that, that bubble up over the years? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, another big question. I think it's a very delicate dance and it has constricted and expanded over the years and reshuffled again and expanded again. And so there are these cycles. Right now, we're seeing a very dramatic cycle where there is a crackdown on various business leaders in China, various business industries. And many people, myself included, are left wondering what it all means. But I think at a basic level, and this is something I talked about in the piece as well, the relationship between the state and entrepreneurs has always been one of utility. So the state uses entrepreneurs to facilitate economic growth. You know, China has become so much richer over the past 40 years as a result of actions of and entrepreneurs like Xu Jiayin. And then entrepreneurs use leaders to get privileged access in, in whatever way is, is useful to them. But right now, the state is kind of reasserting its control over the economy in many ways. So there's not as much room for that relationship. And especially in industries like real estate, which the party has deemed not to be in favor anymore because of these risks that we've talked about, they sit they're saying we don't want <laughs> we don't want to help you and we won't help you and so i think they're saying in the end we are in control you know this might have been a two way relationship for a long time but in the end we call the shots so that's not to say it won't be reshuffled in the future and maybe there'll be more space down the line but right now they're saying we're in charge and Xu Jiayin has to fall in line. And does that apply across sectors? You mentioned Jack Ma earlier. Maybe it'd be helpful to, to refresh people's memory as what's happened with Jack Ma and, and Ant Group. Is it the case that the the crackdown and the sort of balance between business tycoons and the state is, is shifted universally in, in the direction that, that you note above, or is it diverse across different sectors? 
It's definitely diverse across different sectors. I think it's easy to read all the news and say there is a crackdown and that's all people understand. But the crackdowns mean different things in different industries. Um, so Jack Ma, just to give background, he's the he's the founder of Alibaba, in many ways the most high-profile person to be cracked down on in the past year. He was slated to bring his financial services company, Ant Group, public last September, and then regulators out of the blue suspended the IPO which was going to be the biggest IPO of all time. So then after that, Jack Ma was very quiet for the past year. He never appeared in public. He apparently got into painting at his house. But he, so he's laid very low. And that has been mirrored in a, in a bunch of other tech companies as well. So there's this tech crackdown going on in China. There's this real estate crackdown going on in China. But there are a lot of industries that aren't being cracked down on. And some people interpret these crackdowns as indicating which industries the, the government wants and which they don't. So real estate, they don't want because it is highly speculative, very much in debt. Tech, they don't want because it maybe has gotten out in front of regulators. Regulators feel uncomfortable with it. But they do want industries like hard technology, like semiconductors, green energy, these, these industries that are going to help China create a more sustainable economic future. So it's easy to, to say that every private business in China is doing badly right now. That is not true. If you read the news, sometimes you, you would think that, but it's not a monolith. And I think parsing out the differences between why Ant Group got cracked down on versus why Evergrande got cracked down on uh, versus why you know EV or semiconductor companies are doing really well. I think that's useful. It's important to think about the, the variance in different sectors. So moving toward wrapping up, I want to ask a couple of bigger picture questions. When you're thinking about the Evergrande, the whole catastrophe as, as it's unfolded and continues to unfold. And after having done all this reporting on the CEO and, and the way that the company grew, how much of what happened here do you see as sort of being symptomatic of broader structural challenges in China? And how much of it is just, you know, this is a highly idiosyncratic guy running a massive company that spiraled out of control. And, you know, maybe there's some parts of that have to do with these structural problems, but really undergirding it is just the idiosyncrasies of one man and, and one company. What's your, where do you fall on the, the breakdown of, of what to attribute this to? Mm. Yeah, I think it is indicative of broader trends. I think Evergrande is indicative of the fact that many real estate companies are highly in debt. I think Xu Jiayin is good at creating these relationships, but many business leaders were creating those relationships with the political elite. So I think a lot of these things can be said to span many companies and span many different CEOs. But what's interesting about Evergrande is that it is so extreme. You know, they are so in debt and Xu Jiayin is 
so highly connected. So I think why it captured my attention for sure, and I think has captured a lot of people's attention, is because it's just such a extreme example of all these all these things we're talking about. And it, it's kind of interesting to, I mean, people are always drawn to extremes, but it's interesting to think about Xu Jiayin as kind of this archetype of a past vision of, of Chinese CEO. And he's kind of what people think about when they think about a 2000 to 2010, you know, <laughs> very successful Chinese person going big and wearing designer belts. And so I think that world is gone almost. And so people are thinking about his story as this archetype and, and a past archetype that we're not seeing anymore. With Evergrande specifically, what are the things that you're looking out for? Like as as the story moves away from the immediate flashpoint that garnered so much attention, or what are the the clues that you'll be keeping your eyes peeled for to see how this is developing? Is it just a question of whether Evergrande ends up getting the state support that it wants, or is, you know, are there also sort of interesting tertiary questions that you're particularly focused on? Yeah, I think there are a lot of big question marks. One is just you know, what will happen to Evergrande. That's the most basic one. They averted a default this week with a last minute payment, but there are, are more payments ahead. And so what happens with that? This week, Xu Jiayin also announced that they are going to make electric vehicles the Evergrande's primary business. So instead of property, they're they're going full steam ahead with EVs. And that it's unclear how possible that is, but the fact that he's making that pivot and kind of taking into account all that we talked about before about, you know, the Chinese government's preferred industries, he's going into one of those preferred industries. So what happens with, with that? Will he be successful? Is that just a kind of a PR move and he's, he's not actually going to be able to produce those cars? We don't know. The other thing to watch out for is these other real estate companies that have missed payments already. Are they going to default as well? Is this contagion going to spread or is the Chinese government going to be able to effectively contain it? That's a big question. I'm also very curious about what's going to happen to Xu Jiayin himself. Will he lay low and be okay? Will will he go to jail? Uh, will nothing happen to him? I, I don't think anyone knows, but I'm curious what the Chinese government will deem to be appropriate for him, given how much Evergrande has blown up in, in the past few months. So we started with this question. I want to close with it as well. So what about this do you, do you think are the biggest takeaways for people who are interested in in China from a perspective of U.S. national security or from a perspective of great power conflict, what are the things that you would you know, want to make sure that, that people can take away from this as, as a lesson? Mm -hmm. I think the whole crisis underscores a greater problem with the Chinese economy, which, as we talked about earlier, has, has a real impact from the national security perspective. Going forward, 
will China be able to transition from these speculative industries like real estate into more sustainable forms of growth? That's a big challenge, and it's something the Chinese government really wants to do. And thinking about U.S. policy and how we should be, how concerned we should be about China's rise, the effective transition for them into sustainable economic growth is potentially one of the most important things to consider. Um, So that's one thing. The other thing is a lot of people told me in my reporting that while Evergrande and the crisis around Evergrande may fade away in in the coming months, without more durable reform like transparency with regulation, transparency in the media, more Evergrands are going to pop up. So this isn't the last time something like this is going to happen if more durable reform doesn't get put in place. So I, I, as I said in the beginning, I don't want to predict China's economic downfall because many people have done that and many have, people have been very wrong. So we don't want to extrapolate too much from this crisis. But it does show that the Chinese economy has some real challenges and how they deal with it um, and how they deal with any that come up going forward are going to be really important. And the U.S. and anyone in the U.S. who who cares about U.S.-China relations uh, should be paying close attention to that. And that is all the time we have for today. Katrina, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me on. The Wallfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo, and the podcast is edited and produced by Jen Patiahao. Your music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. If you like the Lawfare Podcast, consider checking out our other podcasts in the Lawfare Podcast family. There's Rational Security, The Report, a narrative podcast series about the Mueller Report, and a new occasional series called the No Bull Podcast Series, where we run raw audio of congressional hearings or other speeches and take out the opening statements, the repetition, and all the garbage. Thanks as always for listening.